0: Welcome to an episode of the Defo Mohapi show, hosted by myself, Defo Mohapi. Thank you for taking some time out to listen to this podcast. The show explores the impact, whether famously or infamously, some of my guests have had on the world, their views on the state of the world currently and what they think needs to be done to make our world better, or at minimum, how we can all get along better and do better. Make sure to head over to radio.iafrican.com, that is radio.iafrican.com a and subscribe to get notified on new episodes of this podcast and other iAfrican radio shows. I hope you find this episode insightful.
1: My guest on the podcast today is someone who I think the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me, describes quite well. This is because despite being called many unsavory names on social media and mainstream media, they have, from my observation at least, maintained their composure and elegance. Gwen and Gwenya, thank you for joining me today. Do you agree with that? (laughs) Thanks for having
2: me. I'd say to a large extent, yes, that's true.
1: Why would you say that?
2: Well, I mean, obviously I'm no stranger to, I suppose, some more controversial topics and particularly before I was doing what I was doing now more in, you know, being involved in tech and policy and regulation. I obviously was involved in policymaking at the Institute of Race Relations and then a member of parliament for the Democratic Alliance. So yes, I think I've been at the front of some, some controversial issues in the South African context, which I'm happy to explore in this podcast as well if there's, if there's time
1: and space for it. Given that, would you say you've Being a polarizing figure, as some would say.
2: Well, I think if you stand for something, inherently you probably do polarize because there'll be people who will agree with your take and issue and and those who don't. So I don't think polarizing in that sense is a bad thing. It means you've taken a position, right? People who never take any positions will necessarily never be polarizing figures. So in that sense, I'm quite happy to have been somebody who's taken a stand on some very important um, issues. But I think in South Africa particularly, we really value this idea of unity and I think it's taken too far sometimes. I mean, of course, we, we must be, you know, we must build a sense of national unity and work together. But when unity means that we're afraid of debate and anyone who engages in the debate is then seen as divisive or factional then then that's a problem and I think that's unity taken too far so I think there's there's a space definitely for polarizing debates in the sense that debates that make people think and make them take up positions and there's a time for obviously unity where it's called for as well.
1: Well, that's interesting that you mention. I mean, and uh, unity in South Africa, given the history of the country, obviously it wasn't not not always united. And if you look at things like the nineteen thirteen, I think it's nineteen thirteen Land Act, yeah, which divided the country, which was the premise of I think the beginning of dividing the country along racial lines. Or so what? What? What is your thoughts on? that the country, yes, was historically divided along racial lines. Race is not, I mean, reading some of the, what you've written and listening to some of the things you've said. Race, obviously, even myself, I agree that scientifically speaking, race is, is nonsense, right? The levels of melanin don't determine someone's mental or physical capabilities. But wouldn't you empathize or sympathize with the fact that Given the country's history, there needs some, to be some redress in terms of re- along racial lines.
2: I mean, this is obviously an issue that I've always, you know, Pay a lot of attention to that I'm deeply interested in. I'm actually currently working on a book which hopefully will you know be published in you know within the next year on, on this important subject. So in that sense, yes, Africa has been polarized, and it would I think be naive to say that we've completely overcome any polarizing or divisive issues on the racial front. So, no, there's still a great deal of work to be done to, to be done there. But I think obviously we also can't underestimate the extent to which there is some political capital to be gained by mobilizing on the base of race. And I think there are certainly political figures and actors who would rather that race remain um, as hot a topic as you know, as it is, and, and have no interest in kind of ameliorating racial tensions because it serves their political their political ends. The moment we stop talking about issues like race, we have to weigh in on more complex matters, more nuanced matters, and it's easier to get people to focus on on, on racial divides. But on the on the redress front, I mean absolutely you need redress um, measures. I think the position that I and others who might share this you have always taken is that those measures don't need to be predicated on the same thing. That divided us um, in, the, Elaborate in the past. It? So I mean South Africa is not unique in being in a country where there exists educational inequalities, spatial inequalities, disparities in access to public health care. Many countries face these issues. Our the reason we face these issues may be because of a racially divided past. Other countries might face the issue because maybe there was civil war there was genocide. So the cause of the educational shortcomings or the public health care disparities doesn't so much matter so much as finding the solutions um, for it. So you can say, well, how do we build an inclusive public health care system? How do we ensure that no matter where you're born or the socioeconomic level of your household, you you are able to get a good education? None of those challenges necessitate a racial basis in developing policies to address those issues. So, of course, you must absolutely be able to identify the various areas in society where people don't enjoy equal opportunity. But I think it would be ahistorical and also to be blind to progress everywhere else in the world to assume that you you need a racial basis for implementing those redress policies
1: having said that i mean do you see a future or a scenario where some point in the future as south africans or as south africa we sort of mostly i don't think we'll totally get rid of race as a as a as a topical point or as a point of determining policy etc well, do you see a future where that can change
2: well my interest is for a society in which race is recognized as a myth but the myth may always exist but how we treat it becomes different so again I don't mean to to offend anyone who may be religious I'm not going to mention a particular religion all I can say is that all of us have perhaps beliefs that we might classify as being superstitious or unrealistic you know, if I said you know there's a green monster that flies around the earth, people would probably look at me like, no, there isn't. You know, but yet if a growing number of people started to believe in that, there isn't really probably much that you could you could do about it. But it doesn't mean that their belief needs to find um, voice in policy. So whatever kind of myths and superstitions may exist out there in society, government doesn't say, well, I'm going to take that myth and, and 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 find expression for it in policy. So all I'm saying is we can reach society where race has no place in official government policy. What people choose to do in the privacy of their own homes, when they talk over the briar, you know, that's up to them. You, if you want to identify as a tiger, that's you. You want to identify according to your race, if your race means a huge mm-hmm. part of your identity, that's also on you. It's just saying that the government is not going to, through its policies, reinforce um, these social
1: myths. So would you say because of you labeling it as a myth which I partly agree with.
2: Well, it's it's very much so a scientific myth, right? We can agree that it doesn't exist in a scientific sense. The only thing stopping it from also being a social myth, and whereas right now it's currently a social reality, because it still finds expression in policy, but I think if it didn't exist scientifically, nor could you find expression for it in any policy or social you know, construction, then it would have to be a social myth as well. Something that people perhaps refer to themselves as, but nothing that really has any impact on how society is organized.
1: Then would you say that because it's a scientific myth and you want it to become a social myth, you would be, and you don't want it to be used to determine policy, you would be anti-affirmative action, anti-BEE, black economic empowerment, for those listeners who don't well, know what BEE
2: anti-race-based BE affirmative action. So affirmative action that tries to afford people with disparate opportunities, equal opportunities, is a kind of affirmative action I would support. So by that I mean is that, let's say you have um, a school and you recognise that if we just said we're just going to look at the results. And those children who score fairly, I mean, score highly, we're going to accept them for places at universities or whatever the consequence of high grades are. But you don't look at the fact that those people coming in, even to the same education institution, don't have from the from the first premise, the same ability to learn, because, I don't know, somebody's coming from a household where they don't get any food at all, so they're coming to school really hungry, they can't concentrate, and that affects their ability to learn. So you might say solution to that, which is a positive solution, requires, you know, direction of resources, is perhaps a nationwide school feeding program, um, that is an affirmative action of a sort, because negative policies just say, everyone must have the same, we're going to treat everyone the same. The moment you go into the territory of not just a negative policy that says we're not going to prevent you from getting getting education, the moment you start moving into positive policies which say we're actually going to do something actively to try and help you get to the same level playing field, those are all af- affirmative um, type of policies. So a policy that, um, as I say, school feeding program, you might have resources direct to people who live in far far away areas and say it's unacceptable that somebody has to walk 10 kilometers to get to school so there's going to be a national shuttle service for those who live um, far from the schools they attend. All of those kinds of policies that essentially have as their aim the equalizing of opportunities that people can start to compete on an equal playing field, I would definitely support. And we must think of the ways in which people, it might seem that everyone has has access, but not everyone has the same means to in fact utilize that access. So if you say everyone can go to school, doesn't mean that everyone actually has the capacity to to utilize that opportunity, either because they have no parents or they're heading up a household with, with children, so yes they can in theory go to school but now what are they going to do with their younger siblings or in theory they can go to school but they go to school hungry so they can't in fact actually learn or in theory they can attend a school but they live too far away to actually get to that school. So there are many things which access on its own doesn't ensure and anything you do to ensure the ability to utilise that access, I would classify as being in the the realm of affirmative policies, except they apply to anyone who suffers from that disadvantage. You don't say, we're only going to provide food for you if you are starving and black we just say well if you are hungry and cannot learn we're going to provide
1: provide. yeah and how do you see that the same sort of thinking applying to a policy like BEE in terms of making it you're talking about making sure that people have access instead of just saying there's a law that says everybody can go to school but being proactive and making sure that people have this access
2: yeah. So, I mean, B is the same. A lot of um, the requirements in B policy um, are based on, you know, the recipients, the beneficiaries um, being black, whereas in theory you're trying to target some particular need. So let's say, for example, one one purpose of B may be to encourage the development of small businesses. That's why you allocate a certain number of points to those more established businesses who support um, enterprise development or smaller businesses. So again, there, there's no reason why you can't support small business, um, regardless of who of who the small business owner is, regardless of who is the person um, creating jobs.
1: Okay, just. To go off a tangent. And
2: I think, sorry, before we we move on, I think an important point to to state is that, in fact, those people who who, who recognize that um, the majority of South Africans are black South Africans, and also the majority of those who are disadvantaged are black South Africans, should have no problem with policies based on disadvantage, since... It only makes sense that if the majority of Correct, disadvantaged the are there, black, yeah. then if you have disadvantage-based policy, the primary beneficiaries will be black South Africans. Um, so I don't, you know, there, there, there should be no no challenge or, or no or, or no discomfort in saying that we are going to do away with race from policy. Because who who benefits from a scheme that will feed hungry children? Who benefits from a scheme that, would, people, that that yeah. would help first generation business owners, etc., etc.? It's likely. The, the majority will be... Will
1: be then, black. then would you say, on a more controversial but more realistic point as well, that those who want black-based uh, economic empowerment... Are looking to extract value for themselves, irrespective of whether they're disadvantaged or not.
2: Well, that's the thing you see is that I think you you almost you know you you address two problems at once. The moment you base on disadvantage, you tackle those who are truly disadvantaged, and you also reduce the the ability for kind of this crony, Could beneficiary be really or, or, or nepsom because it means that those who have already benefited or should be of a means where they can actually help themselves don't in fact then qualify and don't use their race to continually qualify because that's the other thing. Socioeconomic indicators, you can move from one socioeconomic group to another. So once you're no longer um, you know whatever the the, de- the definition is. Once you no longer need assistance, so sort of you no longer, longer yes. Yeah, once yeah. you social mobile, you move out of that group needing assistance. Whereas if you base a policy on race, you never stop being black. So when when do we yeah, stop? Yeah, could be system? a billionaire, or millionaire, yes. and still benefit
1: from being. Yes, so socioeconomic
2: like indicators change, but but your race in, in in theory doesn't.
1: You're a liberal, right?
2: Yes, I would. So this I've
1: got a pet peeve uh, the nowadays especially social media and general media people like using catch-all phrases like liberal or capitalism like people would say they hate capital there's a movement nowadays for a couple of years that people hate capitalism and when you scratch the surface you find that they hate certain, features or certain attributes or certain things that have happened under the umbrella of capitalism. For instance, we just talked about nepotism or corruption or bribery or crony capitalism. In your words, and not just under the umbrella, what is being liberal? What does it mean?
2: Well, for one, I would say I think one is somebody could be um, a capitalist without being a liberal or a liberal without True. being a capitalist. So, um, you know, capitalism is, a, is an economic system, whereas the liberalism is the politics that accompanies that economic system. Um, and of course, in most countries that we see today, the two tend to go hand in hand yes. since you believe in a competitive and free market in which Those who generate profits can keep those profits. That generally tends to go along with the political system that reinforces those kinds of individual rights. But they're not necessarily... Um, the same. I mean, you could live in a society where enterprise and business is valued, but other social freedoms are heavily restricted, and that wouldn't be liberal at all. And perhaps that is what we would define a country like China, where certainly there is enterprise, and those who make profits definitely can get to retain them. And um, many successful people, um, you know, businesses have been generated. And yet there's a huge quashing of other social, you know, freedoms in China as well. And one wouldn't, describe that country as necessarily being, a, being being a liberal country so what is it was, so i thought those it was important to, to, to start off to start off there but again liberal is one of those terms that is highly contested and i think it's a whole other conversation whether it's even still useful today to to define people and ourselves through these kind of categories but for me the the, the ultimate defining feature is that you value the idea of freedom um, and mostly individual freedoms. And it sounds kind of abstract, but the more you drill down to a lot of things flow from from that belief, right? That individual freedom is is, is is absolutely sacrosanct, right? So it's because of individual freedom that, you know, you would say the state has no right to seize your property, that you would resist interferences in the state and what are people's private affairs and private transactions. So the belief in individual freedom necessarily gives rise to you know, those more kind of economic freedoms that are garnered by capitalism um, as well. But I mean, some other more, I mean, I just want to pick on maybe areas where people might not have necessarily translated liberal ideas. And another area besides race-based policy that I feel quite passionately about is let's immigration policy. Yep. So if you follow that same theory of liberalism where you value individual freedom and you are you know you are inherently kind of suspicious of state interference then it means it's quite natural therefore that my position immigration is actually that you know we should welcome it and there should be we should actually be trying to get more um, immigration not we, we, less
0: which
1: clashes with your former party members views. yes
2: but that's because yeah. some of them aren't don't actually understand what liberalism is okay. um, it's very difficult to It's very difficult to be somebody who stands for individual freedom and then be um, in support of this arbitrary idea that just where you were born on this earth, where you came out of your mother's womb is now the place where you should be confined for life unless you meet some kind of extraneous factors. I've always found that very bizarre. Just because I happen to be born in South Africa, why do I not belong in any other part of the world but South Africa? I mean, it's it's a really arbitrary way to, to view things. It might make things pragmatically easier, but on a principled level, it's 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 really difficult um, to justify. So in my view, I would really welcome a day in the future where people can move, we're just all global citizens, and you can move freely, Around in the world. It doesn't mean you don't necessarily have borders and and other Mm -hmm. things. I think there might still be useful reasons because obviously there are criminals, there are people who will try to escape responsibility in one area by fleeing to another. So I think there will always probably need to be cooperation between different regional groups and people to say, actually, we're not going to, if you've committed these crimes, you're not welcome here. Or if you commit these crimes, you are not welcome, etc. We are going to communicate with, if you've committed crimes crime somewhere else, you can't come and seek refuge here for, for that crime that we also recognize um, as a crime, for example. So there are still good reasons to monitor borders. And um, I think also, like, unfortunately, people are not well-versed in the literature and the research on immigration policy. So often we are talking about very different things. So mm. when you tell people that, you know, I'm a proponent of open borders, they just think it's anarchy, you know, free everyone is yeah. a free for all. Yeah. Whereas that's not necessarily the case. I mean, I would describe the EU as, and it would describe itself, as a region of open borders, but it doesn't mean there's no security. I mean, yes, if you move between one European country to another. It may be the case that you don't have to have a visa, but you may be asked to present your passport or yeah. to show your identity. They, they might even note um, you know, that you're now in this country. You'll receive a stamp. So you, you, there are lots of reasons why you might still want to monitor who's coming into your, your geographic area, who's going out, without it necessarily meaning it's permission-based. So I'm not asking for your permission, but you have to, you do have to make us aware yeah. that you're moving here and maybe even why are you coming here? So there's many regulations and order that can still be put around a framework of open borders. So it's not kind of anarchy as people expect that it would be. And I think that's a much more reasonable, um, way to, um, to live and to govern the world. So We're all s- just global citizens.
1: So if you had to summarize being liberal, you'd say it's about self-determination. Exactly. The core, the core principle is about yes. self So that rules out communist nations, all those socialist nations, which yes. mostly restrict very, self-determination. Yes. And it
2: means there's a very high standard for government interference. It doesn't mean that it's, as I said, anarchy and government can't interfere. No. You know, in, order, in fact, in order to have freedom, you almost need government. You know, Freedom requires rules. When there are no rules, there's anarchy and probably no freedom, you know. Um, criminals run the place People's freedoms are actually no. oppressed So you actually need, in my view Regulations and a government infrastructure To, in, to enforce people's freedoms But it's, it just means that there's a very high Standard for anything the government Wants to do. If the government says we are going to Prohibit you from doing X They need to present very good reasons And almost to show that there Couldn't be another way they could achieve That same goal without
1: restricting your freedom You once worked at Bloomberg, right? Yes. As an analyst why did you venture into politics?
2: Oh, you know, I've, like I've taken I, a very I, I hate um, politics,
1: I've,
2: so. <laughs> <laughs> I've been, I've done, a, a quite a couple of things. So from, um, you know, from university, I say, well, from South Africa, so I, I got a degree at GCT, and yep. then I moved to. Um, to France and um, studied there um, doing a a master's and it was actually there I was doing my thesis on cartels in India Um, initially it was just going to be just kind of desktop research do it from France but Mm -hmm. through trying to get source information in India um, about the companies there I ended up building quite good contacts there so I moved to India to work as an economic researcher in India and it was kind of still the early days of like LinkedIn and I was in India for about a year or so, when I got an email from a recruiter who was, I must say, incredibly vague. I think I just created a LinkedIn account, and yeah. a, a recruiter was, you know, said to me, Hey, I'm so and so, whatever their name is. Um, where do you see yourself in the next 10 years? And ask me a couple That's of odd. questions. Yeah. And I, my initial response <laughs> yeah. was, so sorry, who are you? Yeah. Why are you asking me this? And they said, Sorry, I can't tell you. Um, why i'm asking or who i'm asking so do you think maybe half tr- of yeah. so it sounded very sketchy but since they weren't asking for personal details they were just asking what are my interests mm-hmm. what, are, what are my plans for the next 10 years i thought well there's no harm in in just sure, responding yeah. um, and i knew obviously well it came vi the message came via linkedin so i thought okay it's so job, yeah, yeah, it's maybe how these things work. And yes, yeah, so it turned out to be a recruiter for Bloomberg. And I still find it weird, but apparently that is industry practice. A lot of these big companies will use recruiting firms and they won't tell you who they're recruiting on behalf of until they know that they're sufficiently interested a in you as, as, a, as a candidate, yeah.
1: yes. So you would say they were tracking your progress. So.
2: Well, I think, um, yeah. I mean, they probably just entered. You know, we we're looking for somebody with experience. on LinkedIn, 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 yes, LinkedIn, yeah. It was early days of LinkedIn. Yeah, like it showed well, up. Um, nowadays,
1: you wouldn't respond to those.
2: <laughs> yes, probably <laughs> not. Them. Yes, and I'm sure maybe recruits have also developed maybe slightly more sophisticated <laughs> ways of approaching people. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yes.
1: So from Bloomberg, you moved. I think. To so the
2: then I was. Yeah. So then I. Yeah, so I was in Bloomberg in London. That's where initially the, the recruit recruiter was from. So I spent time in Bloomberg in London and then moved down to Bloomberg here in South Africa. I think with, with many companies in the financial services, um, fintech space, which Bloomberg very much, I know a lot of people know Bloomberg is like news, but I think even internally, and if you look at where it generates most of its revenue from, Bloomberg is right? definitely a fintech company. Yes, the yes. terminals. Yeah. yeah, I would say yeah. Bloomberg's first and foremost a fintech company that also happens to the news and and the other things. So yes, yeah, so I moved. That's where we, there's a lot of market potential here in South Africa. So I moved as part of you know, the group of people to kind of grow the team um, in South Africa. But this is the weird thing, is that when I lived abroad, whether it was when I lived in France or India or the UK, I never really was switched on to their politics. And I know I just spoke about being a global citizen, so yeah. this, this what's interesting, <laughs> is that when I was there... I actually was just focused on the job. I wasn't really that focused on the politics. Yeah. I guess also because in the back of your mind, you know that even if you were, it you probably have to become a. Seasonal. You don't understand. It's quite difficult. Yes, yeah. exactly. To to actually be in, involved anyway. So, but the moment I moved back to South Africa, I was you know really interested in what was going on again, and I kind of just being somebody who's always been really interested in politics. I mean, I was involved in student politics at GCT as yes. well before I left. I was SUC president there, um, ran i DA, like, ticket or DA student organization. In fact, it was the first DA student organization, SRC, at GCT. Uh, at GCT okay. um, had always been ANC Youth League at before that. So anyway, so, yeah, so there was, I, I was definitely a, somebody who was quite you know, that, that, that interest in politics was always there. And the moment I came back to South Africa, that was just, you know, sparked again. And then I moved from... Yes, that, I think that was the mo- more interesting move, you know, to move from Bloomberg, Bloomberg to, to IRR. Because yeah. I was definitely moving from the private sector, fintech, sort of global company, to a local um kind of more NGO or think tank, if you want to call it that, which, yes, was a very big shift. But I, I think it was just a decision that I wanted to be involved in, in the topics of the day and policy development, particularly something that I felt I was far too removed from in the world of, yeah, where I was at Bloomberg.
1: Mm-hmm. Would you say, I mean, I think you're not the first uh, DA member to move or high profile DA person to move or to go either way between IR and DA. Is there a relationship between the two?
2: Well, I think it's, it's kind of overstated. I don't think there's been that many, but as opposed think tanks aren't huge organizations. So even if there's only been 10 people for a think tank that's a lot whereas okay if you're talking about a huge global company with thousands of employees okay the fact that 10 people have done that is perhaps not really significant but um, yes I'm not the first but I also think that that's something that actually the the DA or you know politics should be encouraged to be proud of because the R is definitely much a thinking um, research um, you know policy making space which supports the kind of ideas that um, the DA should stand for so I think it's only a good thing if there, if there is kind of that intellectual backbone to back up the policy making of the party. And I think it's also the R maybe stands out because there aren't that many liberal or ones who openly say they're liberal in any case, um, kind of research-based institutes in South Africa, whereas there's no doubt every single political party leans on policy think tanks mm. and research, you know, um, I mean... I, I, well, actually, you know what? This is the kind of where you s- say freely. So yeah. as I say, you know, I would say this, this is not sort of like a formal link, but I'd say, for example, that Mistra, which is another kind of, um, you know research institutes it's quite linked to probably the ANC you see the kind of figures that are there and I'm pretty sure there's a lot of flow there as well I'd agree with that Um, so I think that's just that's just what happens and actually that's that's a good thing Um, and you can tell the politicians who come from a space where there's some kind of analysis underpinning their their worldview as opposed to those who are just populist and actually don't have a um, some kind of intellectual backing. Wow.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, but would you, I mean, talking of populist and intellectual backing, one of the things one we'll picks up nowadays is that analysis of facts or, yeah, facts don't really matter that much as, yeah. as opposed to, to narratives. Yeah.
2: And I mean, Why I'm you young, think right? So so? I mean, especially
1: when... in South Africa.
2: Yeah, and so I was just saying that, I mean, and I'm young, so even when I say, oh, in my day, that wasn't even, like, really my day. I'm just meaning, like, maybe 10 years ago. I mean, when I was at university, you know, we could, there was, like, quite a, a strong, obviously, interaction between those of us who, as I said, you know, maybe... Describe themselves. I did as a liberal, and those who are in Sasco and the ANC Youth League or the South African Communist yeah. you, What are they called, Youth League? Li- yeah, but so the, the Communist
1: but, but youth the, League. For, or but
2: like the that. Youth League of the Communist Party, yeah. essentially. I mean, we would debate fiercely and intensely, like in lectures, after lectures. You know, in, in student parliament. And it was fine, right? And it is fine I mean, I'd even go to drinks with these guys. I mean, yeah. I was friends with a lot of ANC people, so I almost don't understand what has happened now. Where it seems like in university you know, you can't even be in the same and they would even attend our events. You know, if there wasn't yeah. if there was an ANC event where they invited the the national youth leader of the ANC, like I would go there to attend because I'd mm-hmm. want to hear and know? that
1: was fun. Yes.
2: What I want to know what is this guy saying? You know, how do we respond to what he's saying? But now it's almost like, no, if you're not one of us, you have you can't speak here, you have no you know, you you, you can't be part of this. This is just our, you know, kind of forum or well, I suppose in the states they're calling like deplatforming. Like there are just certain figures that aren't even allowed to come in and and speak somewhere. You know, there's trying to this idea of trying to prevent certain groups from having a voice, and I think that really robs um, the the level of um, engagement that can occur. It does. I think um,
1: I think that speaks more to that whole robbing people of their voice. More to social media culture, something that's sort of started in social media culture, and yes. now has become part of real life. Yeah, it like, like, we like block people in real life. Yes. Yeah, like block people in real life, and that's not. Yeah. I don't think that's how life should be. Yeah. Because it's it's weird. We don't develop only by associating with people who agree with us sometimes yes. you need to listen to a different viewpoint whether you eventually agree with it or not doesn't matter but i think that's how societies develop
2: no definitely
1: yeah but let's move on to something that interests me a bit more in terms of tech and not politics because i really hate politics <laughs> why do you hate politics, i don't think right? we have a need for politicians okay that's interesting. sorry to say but i don't think we have a need for no i mean for, I can... for politicians like like members of parliament i i in my day-to-day like, life things
2: would still be fine if just
1: parliament no no no. we need to organize we or... need to organize around something i mean we need to leverage our collective uh, bargaining if i can say that so we can organize around things that are smaller maybe city states yes. something like that but politicians at a national level i think it's the world over it's starting to prove that it's slowly becoming useless
2: Well, I would agree with your idea of a kind of more devolved government, like smaller, but I think, so I'm not like particularly tied to one system or another, but I think it would be quite difficult to organize, or at least nobody has been able to articulate yet what would that alternative um, look like. So it's almost like, well, I'm open to hearing it. I I just don't know how some of these things that do need to be coordinated at a national level would happen without, um, you know, politicians being there i mean one could say well in any case a lot of these politicians don't know what they're talking about sometimes you have an ex-geography teacher all of a sudden now they're like the minister of mining and you're like what do they know about mining that should be you know (laughs) like somebody pop industry so in that sense yes you know and perhaps the bureaucrats could do it all on their own without the politicians but the bureaucrats are following some kind of strategy or agenda so who sets the agenda the agenda if there are no Politicians, what, did, what are the bureaucrats working towards? I look at Who it from... Who the overall plan? I, I, I hear you. I look at it so from... So then do we elect the bureaucrats? But then if we're electing the bureaucrats, are we back to basically a political, political system? system yeah. Yeah. I look
1: at it from a different point of view, and I hear your, your, your angle of it. I look at it from... Uh, let's take taxes. We pay taxes. The yeah. suburb pays taxes. Those taxes go, obviously, municipal... Well, they get collected nationally. And at national level, it's determined how they should be spread out everywhere. One area, definitely, I mean, it can never be that all the areas pay taxes equally. Obviously, some areas, and when I say taxes, I'm not only talking income tax, talking companies' tax, VAT, whatever tax exists, roads tax, you name it, we all pay taxes. And those taxes are collected nationally. And at national level, it's determined who should get how much taxes. Yes. I mean, I think recently, and a good example of that is recently with the crime statistics, it was revealed that uh, police stations or police in black areas or black communities receive less resources. And yeah. there are less police stations per person or something like that yeah. in black areas, yet we all pay taxes. I don't know the exact taxes we pay. So I would think that if we organized around... And I agree with you. Nobody has articulated this in a detailed way to say this is what I propose in terms of city-state. I would think that when we organize around a city-level type state, we'd say, this is our budget because we live here. There's some sort of skin in the game.
0: Yeah, We
1: live here. This is what we've collected to contribute to our needs here because we know our needs.
2: Yeah.
1: What's your thoughts on the platform or on-demand economy? I mean we, things like ride hailing things like since you work in tech policy yeah if we can move on to tech cuz as i said i hate politics it's what's your point. thoughts on that i've got my views but i'll share them yeah. afterwards.
2: well i mean if, i mean there's there's so much to say but i'm obviously interested in from an issues. economic from, point of view yeah, let's start from there. a you know policy impact point of view and i just i think that's obviously around the world, we're already seeing, you know, the, the consequences, some positive, some negative, um, of these, um, new platforms. But I think in South Africa, we're almost the unique position where, well, not, Completely unique, but um, we're in a fortunate position, I think, where some of these technologies are almost like trickle-down technologies. So we they happen somewhere else first before yes. they, they 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 arrive here, and I think we should be using that almost that lag time. To, to start thinking about what the effects are going to be, how do we prepare for them? Um, how should we respond on a policy level? Instead, we don't do that. We're almost just like watch it happening, watch it. It's like seeing a ship or something or coming, or to coming hit you, towards yeah. you, and you're just like not moving. You're not strategizing. You're not doing anything. And then only when it arrives, do you want to start having conversations about well, what is what is the impact going to be? You know, what do we do? So, I mean we're still at a stage where yes there are now some for example um you know there's you know platforms that um you know provide work so you know um, yeah there are platforms which kind of try and crowdsource work if you, yeah, if you want KG, to put it economy that way tab, yeah. but they aren't, they aren't ubiquitous I mean there's still a tiny fraction of the South African labour market so I think there is still opportunity to manoeuvre there where there could be a lot of thinking about the future as to which industries are most at risk to be, to be hit and how do we start re-skilling those um those people or even how I mean I feel like the how is already there we just need to actually just do stop it. doing it yeah. you know um, so I Obviously, it needs a proper assessment so i'm not saying these are the industries at risk i'm just making hypothetical examples yes, I understand, I understand. if you can see that well um you know driverless vehicles and drone technology in combination is going to make the entire tracking and logistics industry almost redundant because you're not going to need as many drivers um anymore and we don't so let's just hypothetically say that it was an industry that you identified in the next ten years. Anyone who's a driver is a significant risk of losing their job because of drones or driverless vehicles. So already you could start to have a program where maybe we're going to fund those people to do something else. We know that that skill will be required at least, you know, for the foreseeable um, for the foreseeable sure. future. Um. So I think you can start to target groups of people and groups of at risk roles the moment and start to target them for training. And it doesn't mean that just because you've now learned how to, I don't know, you're a driver and you've just now learned how to be a UX designer that you're going to leave your job as a driver no. the next day. But you now kind of have that there kind of in your skills bank and maybe ready to transition when you do need to. So I think that's kind of how we need to also start viewing um, the effect on the future of work that these platforms will have is to to think of just reskilling as the need to to continuously acquire skills even if you're not going to use them right at this moment so reskilling isn't kind of like this disruptive moment in the future where oh and f- all of a sudden i now need to switch you mm. know it's kind of like you're just it's going on in your, in your yeah. role and you're just kind of quietly acquiring skills so i could be in the job that i'm in now and take up a ux designer course i know that maybe i could transition there, or I could move into you know, just something else, but you're continuously acquiring skills that you may use in the future, but not, but not necessarily draw on um, right Immediately. now. And that's, um, yeah. So I think those are the kind of things we need to, to start doing in response, because I think in terms of labour, that's where the, the most profound effect of these platforms and on-demand economy is going to be.
1: Yeah, and that's my sort of, not anger, but gripe or pet peeve with the current strike about banking workers and the banking industry in South Africa so in South Africa we've got this thing that for IR I hate that phrase yeah. Yeah. for IR is like an event so it's gonna yeah. come like I don't know Jesus comes from the sky or something yeah. so and it yeah, arrives or it's arrived or it's about to arrive or something to that effect yeah. and in the banking industry currently, and the bank executives have sort of jumped on this and say, we're going to lay off a lot of people, and it's because software is eating these jobs. You know, we're automating, we digitizing, therefore, we have to lay you off because of, and they've actually said this, because of 4IR. And I'm yeah. like, but that's not true. As you say, it's a process. You knew and you saw the trends long ago. So you started putting in ATMs, which is software and hardware. Yes. And and those replaced certain jobs inside the 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 branch. Yeah, that was a start. Yeah. Then you started having internet banking. That's another start that eliminated certain jobs, and you saw the current trend coming. As you say, you could see that in the U.S. or even in other developing markets that they're dropping branches and they're starting. They're moving to apps. They're moving to to internet banking, they're moving to AI chatbots that automate uh, support queries, so you have to lay off certain support stuff. So you can't come in 2019 and tell me somehow all of a sudden 4IR landed yes. and you had to ditch all, a that's, lot of people. The
2: important question though, whose responsibility is it to spot those trends and do something about it?
1: I think it, it, it works both ways. I mean, as an organisation as big as a bank... Mm. You definitely have people, at least at the executive level, looking at these trends and saying, this is going to affect our, our our bottom line. We need to become... I mean, software at the end of the day is about becoming more efficient. Yeah. Improving the bottom as line. As far as the
2: difficult sellers, is you're basically asking people to reskill workers who they might be reskilling for different industries and companies. So who bears the burden...
1: I, I hear you, uh, but I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying reskill them. I'm saying think about it and make them aware yes, of it right, because exactly. not, not, not everybody who works currently, let's say in a bank branch. There's a way that. Is aware that their job yeah. won't exist in a year two, three and it's actually on the way out, let's put yes. it that way. But also not necessarily everybody who works in a bank branch wants to become a software programmer or a UX designer. Maybe others want to be carpenters or something that's still in demand. Yeah. So but it's better as a bank. And I'm just yeah. using banks as an example to make them aware of that Yeah. and not give them this false hope that their jobs are guaranteed for a long yeah. time.
2: But that's exactly it. But I actually think a lot of South African companies have tried to almost stall technological progress for the sake of not confronting diff- difficult political issues like I was about to say it's a political unions. thing. I mean, especially if you look at like retailers, right? I see, as I said, you know, Liverpool in the UK and for years they've had, they've basically been hardly any, um, cashiers yep. in, in, in supermarkets. Petrol attendants. You know. They've been like self-service checkouts. For years now, I mean, and there's no rational explanation why there's still a cashier at every single checkout point in the average African supermarket, other than the fact they probably are trying to stall as long as they can. It's to appease the unions, um, I mean, the, let's the be honest, yeah. um, Because the technology's there, I'm sure it's much cheaper. It's less of a Definitely. headache. I can't think of why why it hasn't. And that you know, technology
1: means less leakage. In terms of, yeah. of, of whatever happens at the cashier, so I think yeah. the bottom line is everybody's trying to appease. It's a South as you say, political sort of climate in South Africa.
2: Yeah. I mean, trying to appease Amazon the unions now, where you're not even at the point of self-service checkouts. You have now like you know no, you near field contactless out. technologies, yeah. where yeah, exactly, you don't even need to go through a checkout point, and we we're not even at the point where it's self-service. There's still a physical human being checking out every no, single item. We have to emerges. be honest. I
1: think it's to appease um, the unions. Yeah. That's I b I can't think of any other reason why it the the labor market is or things are structured like that. And unfortunately we can't stall the implementation of technology digital technology specifically because that means we lag behind as a country. We're not yeah. as efficient. I mean technology, as I said, basically means we become more efficient at doing things, whether whatever industry we implemented it. Yeah. So in terms of retail it means we become more efficient in well, delivering the customer experience. So there's less friction between in terms of when you shop, you just pick yes. things and you walk out. Do think there's so such
2: a missed opportunity in terms of like future scenario planning around the possible impact of emerging technologies yeah. and to have those policy discussions before there's actually you know, before they've arrived yeah. and before there's now a bill on the table. Because often once there's now a piece of legislation, you've already kind of, you have, you know, you've already have people pitted against different sides and it's, the conversation is very hostile and adversarial. Whereas I think, for example, like at the moment where there isn't a driverless vehicle currently in the market in South Africa, as far as I'm aware. Perfect time you to could, start the you, discussion. you could have a conversation that is less hostile between Auto, um, you know, unions and um, workers, companies, because they're not—they're not discussing something that's actually real Affecting and, them now. Yes, yeah, so it's yeah. almost like you can collectively brainstorm about what's the future of this industry. How do we respond to it in a way that's um, less adversarial? Because there isn't. Um, something that's um, that, that, that p- puts you on different sides yeah. at the moment. Think, yeah, but the moment there is actually a driver's vehicle, then it's going to become about that particular no, vehicle. No, we've seen that happen all the particular time. And yeah. those workers that it's putting out of a job, it's, you can no longer have um, a, a collective discussion about And
1: then it. you'll be told about capitalism is bad, but you like, we saw this coming yes. ten years ago. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think we're more of a reactive from a policy-making point of view, and we wait until. But I, I, I don't. I partly just a little bit sympathise because of the political again setup of South Africa. There's unions to appease, and it's historical, etc. But I think it's gonna put us back and make us lag as a country economically if we don't deal with these things on time.
2: And unfortunately, there's never been a successful union for the unemployed. I've always thought there should be a union for the unemployed. Um, Because if you think about it, workers' unions are there to protect those who are currently in jobs. Which, in some ways, often operates in tension against those who um, are unemployed.
1: Yeah, but having said that about the gig economy, my observation so far, and I'd love your thoughts on this, is that platforms like ride-hailing platforms, anything that crowdsources uh, sort of suppliers, but doesn't actually own those services or resources, tends to, over time, I mean, we're still in the early days of, of, of these type of platforms, but so far it looks like they tend to cannibalize the very... Industry that they're operating, or the suppliers. I'll give you an example with ride-hailing. So you started off as a normal meter taxi or cab driver. You had your own car. You set your own rates. Or you knew along, like, in the community that, oh, we agree on this rate. And Well, that's course, what
2: you'd call collusion, but I don't collusion. know <laughs> <laughs> they, <laughs> they should <laughs> be
1: doing that. So they, they'd agree, and... Obviously you didn't have an app so you all wait in a queue outside a high traffic high foot traffic area yeah and you all agree this one's going first because he came first, etc. Now you move into a scenario where you are sort of forced, I wouldn't say but I th- I'd say coerced to use Uber because one, it's done its marketing well to the customers it's drop prices so it can compete which I'm happy with because we live in a free market system because it also Uber subsidizes and all the other ride right, hand, they subsidize that 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 uh that fare the cheaper fare to the customer
2: well but those are uh, the kind of competitive issues we should be looking at because yeah. i um from a from a market competition point of view any time where somebody's actually making a loss to fund a particular um you know business function, I think that that starts to be dubious, right? Because it's one thing if you can provide a service um, cheaper than everybody else can, covering your costs. But the moment you're actually not covering your costs, it's definitely... Um, um, a power move in the sense that it's, it's oh, a to to the squeeze. Yeah, yeah, grab, you the, market grab the, market. the market, and probably once you have, then you, you increase will the increase prices. prices yes. Once you've created the barriers for everyone else, so I think that kind of behavior, predatory behavior, should be um, this should Look be closely needed. monitored.
1: So that happens, and that means now, as a as a, I'm continuing with the whole idea of cannibalizing the the, the supply. Mm-hmm. Now you're forced to drive more, do more trips, because this Uber, I mean, there's always strikes, not only in South Africa, across the continent and across the world, about drivers saying Uber charges too little, they're not able to cover the the car expenses, car leasing expenses, and their normal uh, living expenses, because now they have to do more trips, but also because now there's more drivers. Uber just accepts as many as it wants to for the convenience of me and you as customers, so that we don't yes. have to wait more than five minutes once we've requested an Uber ride, which is perfect. I'd love it as yeah. a as a as a customer. But from I wonder how long, and this is where I, I want your thoughts is how long can that be sustained to a point where it's unsustainable?
2: Well, I think also the sometimes the problem is these things is that we don't kind of undertake a broader view, like a kind of net societal welfare analysis, because as you're saying is that there actually are people who benefit out of this model, right? Um, And not just when we think about it, customers in the sense of I'm just wanting to get from point A to point B. I think there are a lot of businesses that can start to be, to be built off this, um, you know this kind of model, um, which I think is is also important. So it facilitates a lot of business as well. If you can move to one place, you know, get to meetings earlier than yeah. you could have. And look, people—it might not be strictly what Uber advertises, but I know some small businesses do that as well. Move parcels or smaller yes, packages yes, through, through Uber before. as yeah. well. So it's kind of like cheaper and more efficient well pick up kids well. from school. Exactly. So there's 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 a lot more that's going on in the economy. Me there that Ubers or these kind of you know hailing companies are plugging into and all of that almost has to the net the, the benefits and the, the losses almost have to be looked at completely to try and figure out is this service or platform um overall, you know, something that's a net positive or a net net negative um, in society. And I think unless you do that, it's difficult to say because you're always going to find anecdotal evidence that supports one view or another. That's right. I mean, you're not going to struggle to go out there and find drivers who are going to have the the complete opposite of the kind of um, perhaps more tragic story that you've just outlined. Some drivers will say before that actually... They were working for a taxi company that, that owned cars and they were driving. Mm. That happened as well. And now with Uber, they were able to finance um, their own vehicle because there are those, they to are those people um, as well for yes. Uber and um, yes. a vehicle. So some of them are now actually independently own their vehicle. They find their time is more flexible because they don't have a boss who says you have to drive in these hours. Maybe as long as you make X amount, that's fine. They can choose for themselves when to make that amount in the early hours, of the morning late at night, on the weekends, So it provides people with also flexibility they didn't enjoy before. And so it's all of these complex benefits and negatives. Gymmas have to weigh up and see um, what is the net result, Um, which I think as long as it's operating and consumers are choosing it and there are available drivers, I'm inclined to say that it's probably a net positive and not negative because the moment you have enough of a pain point – there should be somebody coming in to challenge Uber to address that pain point. And it suggests to me that they, as long as that model is successful, there isn't a pain point or something that hurts enough for somebody to try and do a different model. Or is profitable enough. Yes. um, Yeah.
1: So I think, I mean, in a free market system, uh, although I mentioned that they do tend to cannibalize, but I think in a free market system, it's anything goes really within the, within the laws. And given also, I see it as, and this is sort of, not, not really conspiracy theory, but it is actually happening. I see the current Uber model or the Bolt model or any other ride-hailing company as eventually we're going to have autonomous cars, self-driving cars. The current drivers, and it goes back to what you said earlier about anticipating things that are going to come and talking about them now. Eventually, these drivers are not going to be there.
2: Yeah.
1: Which means, Which could mean that Uber could be able to maintain this pricing. Or even drop it further because there's no human sort of element. Also to it. it's,
2: it's a kind of initial model. I think you're also going to, people are going to find opportunities to use that model kind of as, as inspiration, but to iterate it in different ways that make sense for more niche segments of the market. I mean, you're already seeing, I, I can't remember the name now, but recently in kind of response to, I mean, unfortunately, the, the, the frequency of um, gender-based violence that you're seeing now there's a kind of Uber but only for women and yes, somebody else is, starts in is, an yeah. Uber but only for children, you know, with yeah. more tailored... A more tailored model for that, for that market, because maybe people don't trust the standard um, e-hailing platform to send their kids with or to travel as women alone at night. So I think you are going to find almost, it's not not technically a spin-off, but these kind of, um, you know, companies that are inspired by that original model but there's going to be more of them um i think and that'll probably be a better environment um um, i would think that perhaps having one platform that monopolizes the entire market
1: we'll see but another angle of of these like platforms, but it also spreads over to other tech, digital tech platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Google, Amazon and others, is that the way they're set up and given that they're digital tech platforms, in most cases, in most cases they have from a corporation point of view, they'll have two corporations or three in some cases if they venture into China. They'll have one incorporated in the US and another either incorporate mostly incorporated in Ireland in the cases of Google, Facebook, Twitter, Microsoft and many others. And in the case of Uber, they'll have another incorporated in Amsterdam. Yes. What that typically means and based on the if you read their terms and conditions and privacy policies etc is that the users who are whose IP addresses are from the US are governed by the US corporation. Yes. And they pay taxes to the US for those for the revenue generated or the ads shown to those users or the services offered to those users. And everybody else who falls, me and you and everybody else who falls outside the US is governed or falls under the the Irish. Corporation, And we've seen this revelation, not revelation, it's not a revelation, it's public knowledge, it's there in the document. Recently, I think that's back as two years or a year back, when Facebook had that big Cambridge Analytica saga, the South African information regulator sent a letter to the local Facebook Africa office, which is in Joburg, and asked them, please share more information about what's happened, because you guys are saying you're Facebook Africa and your head office is here in Johannesburg. A week or two later, a letter came back from Facebook Island with the MD who's legally sitting in Ireland saying that, uh, just a note, the users in South Africa fall under Facebook Ireland. Therefore, that's why I'm responding to you courteously. In a way, saying that I don't have to, <laughs> yes, but, but courteously. Yes. There's, I, I can't remember the exact wording. I've got yeah. the letter. It said, I'm... I'm re- but... Like I don't. Yeah, this is what happened. This is what happened. You don't need to worry. Blah blah blah. And that was the end of that. So what do you? How do we navigate that again? I mean,
2: well, I suppose as far well as there's, there's a push for establishing global um, frameworks on issues like data privacy, how yeah. data is stored, um, security around data, um, as opposed to a complicated system where each country is developing its own framework for how these issues are treated. But I think we're still probably some away from global frameworks. It's, it's more likely that jurisdictions that have the capacity set the turn and everybody else is just expected to copy and paste realistically. Um, for example, I'm not quite sure to what extent South Africa could, could have a framework that um, you know, dramatically departs from the GDPR regulations we've seen from the EU and say, well, this is kind of the gold standard and see everybody else conform to, to, to our local no. rules. That's not happening. It's just more likely that we're probably just going to end up abiding by GDPR um, by Well,
1: we, we've got, what, what what's that? The Protection of Personal Information Act, which yeah. is... No,
2: but it's not, it's, it's, it's not f- nowhere near as extensive no. as, as as those rules and I'm just saying there's also kind of a first mover advantage yeah. those who set the oh yes trend, I get you I get you yeah. first yeah. everyone else who comes after tends to just then conform to those to those, to those standards. rules yeah. but
1: what about from a tax point of view because I mean speaking from a government now trying to sit as a government person with my SARS or national treasury hat on I would think that as a government, we create the environment for businesses to operate in a country, whether online or anywhere. Mm. But that's, well, f- yeah. the function of a government, I think, to create an environment for business. And as a sort of, as a levy or as a tax for you to benefit from this environment, you need to pay a certain tax. So how do we navigate that big tech companies don't pay taxes.
2: Yeah, which is, I mean, some of these more like global or transnational issues is why I lament kind of the weakening over time of the World Trade Organization. I think we've gone back to a stage where there's far more bilateral and multilateral kind of agreements than everyone kind of getting together in a global stage and and setting rules and and ways of behaving that everyone is going to conform to. And, And I think the less leverage you have, I mean, unfortunate truth is that you can only get, you know, for as much leverage as you have. And right now, South Africa being in the economic situation that it is, I feel like we're more going out there as like Beggars. beggars with our caps in hand. And, you know, <laughs> I'm not quite sure we're in a position to, to, to make much demand if there might be more attractive areas for people to, to establish business and to do business. Um, so I think, yeah, you can, you almost can only exercise leverage in those discussions if you become a very attractive destination for those countries, which only increase the reason why we need to get our act together because I think, the more attractive environment this is, the more leverage we have to, um, to, to negotiate.
1: Yeah, I agree with you on that. And in terms of, I mean, one, well, I think one of those things that contribute to us being beggars in terms of like, these negotiations is that, and, and it, this is anecdotal, a general observation that across Africa, South Africa included, most government or members of parliament, or even those who fall under the ICT ministries are sort of lagging in terms of their understanding of what needs to happen. So what you typically get, like we just discussed, is we are reactive in terms of policy, but also what happens is if something looks like they don't understand it, they slap regulation on it.
2: Yeah.
1: How do we change that? Or what need do we need to change that in the first place?
2: Well, I think also the complex thing about regulation, how how it happens is that I think you also, you you might have a national culture of what the response is, but each department also t- tends to take on its own tone. I mean, I, I don't, for example, how things are developing I mean, I'm just trying to think of something that might be a good example is kind of the, the draft tourism bill that came out, which obviously might affect companies like Airbnb, where there's a potential for rate of like, you know, thresholds being imposed, which might affect that industry. And it feels almost, look, there have obviously been discussions along the way behind the scenes, but it's quite a quick move relative to what we've seen perhaps um in, in 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 finance where let's take you know cryptocurrencies or crypto mm. assets as treasury prefers to or the governor prefers to, to to refer to them there was like a consultation paper there were like guidelines and we're still not at a stage where there's like a draft bill to govern um cryptocurrency so i think departments do can take different approaches to how they deal with you know emerging technologies or mm-hmm. innovation mm-hmm. in that particular space. But, and, and I think the approach that has been taken by, by Treasury slash, um, you know, the, the reserve bank is probably, you know, around cryptocurrencies is probably the, the best way where you kind of adopt a wait and see model because you realize that the effects of this particular new model we don't know enough yet to just, as you say, just slap on regulations. Yeah. Let's monitor, w- you know, what the economic impacts are and see where we do need to, um, to intervene. Um,
1: yeah, uh, it's it's just worrying that I mean, you you see in other. Luckily, we haven't got to that stage in South Africa where. Social media dissent is treated with banning of social media around election times and yes. slapping on off uh, social media taxes when you want to yes. in, in countries. But where that's
2: why if you operate in that space, I think. Also, you know, South Africa, I find the interaction at times are quite deferential, like business is very deferential yeah. to government and they find it difficult to, to challenge things or it's a kind of culture of quiet diplomacy. Maybe they are critical, but behind back doors, they wouldn't really express that publicly. Mm. But sometimes it can be dangerous because people public sentiment can get it, can get ahead of you, and then it's difficult to, to reverse that. Um, and again, I'll just refer to, um, to, to, to cryptocurrency, which is mm. that, you know, I think it's a, f- I mean, it's a whole, Discussion, a dis- separate discussions to get into, but I think it's a, it's a problematic that they refer to them as crypto assets and not cryptocurrency because it's a very specific move to not recognise these as mm. legitimate um, currency. currency. But wouldn't that require changing
1: of the constitution?
2: Well, I mean, whatever it requires, I just feel like there should be more of a public discussion about what's happening there because you kind of embed this idea that these things are something a bit nefarious, something you mm, know.
1: what you say. There's
2: there's something not you know not very credible or legitimate about um, you know these these cryptocurrencies yeah. as I will call them, but you know, and um, they don't quite fall under the class of currency. And I think this kind of debate should. be... There are they are complex, but somehow we should be trying to have them more in a public way that everyone can understand. What are the implications of referring? to them as currency um, you know why does do governments feel threatened by that um, another thing that should have merited more public discussion is when the governor referred to I don't, I don't know if he was referring to cryptocurrency in total or to Bitcoin specifically as a pyramid scheme he and did. again that's uh, was, something was quite shocking and yet there was he, much it was like nobody said governor anything governor calling yeah. it a pyramid well, scheme he, I mean, it's not a per- I mean
1: he, so he, I think he, it's he once <laughs> had a Freudian slip when he was talking I think it was when they were announcing the. I'll find the clip, we'll probably insert it in the podcast if we can. Yeah. Where they were announcing the guidelines around crypto assets and cri- yes. And he said cryptocurrencies and like,
2: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it does <laughs> so kind quite, of, even yeah. if on the surface it seems that they're waiting and seeing, you, you can sometimes see the actual, maybe the real thinking. Cummings to the service, oh, this is, is kind like, We don't really trust do this. this, yeah. Yes, and there, sh- there should be more public conversations oh, about um, about that.
1: I agree. Would you become Minister of ICT?
2: I mean, if there was ever an opportunity to do so, I mean, I still, I'm still very interested in politics. I think sometimes it's, you know, bad politicians give all politicians um, a bad name. So I think the more corrupt and bad politicians there are, the more people want to kind of have this really large um, distinction between politics and business whereas I think there could actually be just as much engagement and involvement but with just a lot more transparency and and accountability but I think people are afraid who are in the private sector to express their political views because that might have you know consequences for for business etc but I hope I don't over time become that way where we come to sort of Afraid to talk. Um, and so I think a lot of people are, you know, it can hurt your yeah. bottom line if you say the wrong
1: things. So you don't want to become like the other politicians. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, the other people in business who, who completely distance. I mean, it's one thing if you distance yourself from politics because you just genuinely. You know, that's not something you're very interested in or where you feel comfortable in engaging. So that's fair enough. But I also do think at a certain at a certain level, you almost if your if your business, you know, employs a number of people, if you if you have a a clear stake in the South African economy, you almost can't excuse yourself from having an opinion on the policies that shape even our economic environment. You almost you can't exempt yourself from having an opinion, yet so many do and feel like they can't share that and um, because of the political consequences. So I think our democracy is quite immature in some ways in that sense.
1: On that note As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Gwen Nguenya is a good example of the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words cannot harm me. However, more important, I think, in my opinion, is that she's able to hold her ground and articulate her positions on various issues despite disagreements or insults being thrown around. Gwen, thank you once again for joining me.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Defo Mohapi Show, which is broadcast by iAfrican Radio. To be notified of future episodes of this podcast and any other shows from iAfrican Radio, please visit radio.iafrican.com, that is radio.iafrikan.com and subscribe. You can catch future episodes on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else where you listen to podcasts. Also, don't forget to leave us a review and rating of the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow myself on Twitter, at DefoMohapi, which is T E F O. M-O-H-A-P-I. Also, don't forget to follow African 2 on Twitter at I-A-F-R-I-K-A-N. Hodzo.